It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. Type in those coordinates, one of the two, plus E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome uh, two doctors to the show today. We have with us Joel Lexchin. He is a professor emeritus of health policy and management at York University, my old mater, and uh, emergency physician at University Health Network, associate professor of family and community medicine at the University of Toronto. And Dr. Robert James is a graduate of family medicine and ran a community practice with affiliation to McMaster University for 30 years, overlapping with uh, final years in practice was a decade of work in a long-term care project, reimagining long-term care with, uh, with that. We're, we're talking with you two today because of an article you co-wrote together, authored for uh, the conversation, spurring this conversation that we're having today, about uh, COVID-19 and it, the tragic toll that it has taken in long-term care homes. Uh, of course, bringing a lot of attention to long-term care homes um, and the plight of long-term care homes. You two gentlemen have seen that firsthand and have uh, dealt with it and uh, worked there. And, uh, you know, we, we have seen, of course, that, and in, in other stories that have come out, about the, the people working there. It's not just about the, the residents that are in these long-term care homes. It, it's about how they're run, run how the people are, are, are actually even paid in these places. We, we've seen so much about that. So it's great that the two of you uh, co-authored this, uh, this, this article that we uh, can touch on. And um, I, was it somewhat timely for you in terms of uh, having this, uh, you, wanting to write about it? Uh, you look, as you say, you, you, you ha- have been working on this and, uh, and, and uh, working in the long-term care home uh, for quite some time. Well, it's, I mean, it certainly is timely in a sense. Uh, we finished our prior 10-year project and funding for that about uh, maybe a year ago. Mm. And so we've been doing sort of summaries of what we've uh, learned from it. And then COVID came along and just emphasized and laid bare, in fact, some of the problems that that we've known about for decades. I mean, I worked in general practice for 30 years, and part of that practice was long-term care. Mm. And we knew about these problems 30 years ago, uh, but nobody's done anything about them. Nobody of any government has done anything about them. Mm. It's been... And and I... um, I just want to make it clear, first of all, that I do not speak for the University Health Network, um, but I've worked as an emergency physician there for um, over 30 years, Um, so I haven't worked in long-term care, in a long-term care home, but we certainly do see the patients who come in from those homes on a very regular basis. Um, so in that way, I've had been able to get an idea of what kind of care people are getting and the problems associated with those homes. Mm. 
you, you reflect a little bit in your article on uh, on a project led by Pat Armstrong um, and uh, from York University that you talk about how looking at uh, uh, several provinces, long-term care in, in British Columbia, Manitoba, Ontario, and Nova Scotia, and then uh, taking five countries that you compared that to as well, being Germany, Sweden, Norway, United Kingdom, and the United States. What, what did you find from that? We were looking at uh, trying to find promising practices in long-term care uh, by looking at various jurisdictions. And we found many promising practices, but some of the things that we wrote about had to do with opening our eyes to the importance, the, the real importance of many of the other workers aside from the RNs. Mm. I mean, as a physician, I mostly dealt with RNs on the boards and, right. and on the floor. And they're the ones who would go around to see patients with me if I needed somebody to, to help me there. But uh, doing the work for over the 10 years made me aware that uh, it's cleaning staff, it's laundry staff, it's dietary staff, and PSWs who, who have the closest contact with, with the uh, residents of long-term care homes and actually have the most chance to impact their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that was an eye-opener for me as a physician. Mm -hmm. um, because I just, I guess I just hadn't thought about it over the years that I've been practicing there. Mm. And I, I think that um, one of the things that we noticed in some of the countries, not in Canada or the United States, was that um, the roles of in in some of the homes for these other workers were not as rigidly defined as they are in in Canada. So people would take on different functions, um, and and I think as a result of that, probably had more interaction with the residents of the homes than you would find for in Canada for people who are cleaners or um, preparing the food. Mm. Yeah. Now, did the two of you know each other prior to uh, working on this together? Yes, yeah, we've been we've been friends actually for many years. Okay, and and so during that that time that you've been friends and and coming up with this idea to to uh, co-author and and look at this, um, uh, uh, Bob, you you are you're the one that worked in the long-term care homes. That's right. Yeah, I was the medical director at a at a municipally run home in uh, Dundas, Ontario, for. Uh, I guess about 12 years um, and had worked as a physician in that same home uh, for 20 years before that. Dundas, beautiful little place. Absolutely beautiful. It is. It's quite a nice place. Uh, so, Joel, what I'm sure you guys probably had exchanges of conversations and talking about things. Uh, when, you, when you would talk about this topic, uh, what surprised you about some of the things that, that Robert might have passed along to you? generalities um well i guess one of the things and we mentioned this in the article was how little money they spend in ontario on food mm. per day for residents in these in these homes um and now i can't comment on the food in the homes but if it's anything like hospital food um it's not very good i mean you can fill up your body on, what was it, Bob, about $7 and something? 
Well, in the 90s, it was about $7 a day for food uh, per, per yeah. resident. Um, it's now gone up to $8.33. So, now, that, that's, the money, that's the money allocated from the province? That's the money allocated for the province, yeah. You, you're, the homes have a line-by-line -line budget, and the money that's right. allocated for food is per and, resident, $8.33 at this time. And, and, is, and that that, the, is that the total budget? There's nothing else that, that supplements that? Not for food. Wow. Uh, hmm. In in my home, because it was municipally run home, the hmm. municipal government gave us additional funds for food, so hmm. that bumped it up to about nine dollars per right. resident for food for food per day. Um, but just to point out, at the time that I was uh, seeing seven dollars per day per resident, at that time the federal government was paying ten dollars per day per resident for its prisoners in, hmm. in federal prisons. Yes. So, uh, it, it really shows you a little bit where the government's priorities are, I suppose, uh, yeah. or where they aren't, more specifically. I think that the COVID-19 has really uh, focused a lot of attention on uh, everyone's sort of uh, lack of, of attention to uh, what's been happening in long-term care homes. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, it was interesting uh, near the beginning of this, and we saw this, this starting to happen, I believe it was, it was Prime Minister uh, Trudeau that said uh, that these are the people that uh, that have, have worked, you know, they've, they've uh, fought for the country in some instances, they've been, uh, they're the people that built the country up to, to, to today, and, and this is, you know, not the way we should be treating uh, these people. Clearly, I mean, these are the people as well that work for our social programs that we all benefit from, the mm. social network that we have now, safety network that we have now, Medicare and, and unemployment insurance and so on. Um, and we're treating them, um, well, in terms of their food, we're giving them, we're treating them worse than we do our prisoners. Right. Uh, and, you know, not that prisoners should be treated badly, but right. uh, I think long-term care people should be treated better. And... It is interesting uh, about all those things that have come out. You, as you point out, uh, the people that uh, handle the, that do the laundry, uh, the people that sweep the floors, all of those people uh, in these long-term care homes, uh, and and also I found it interesting that you you point out that a lot of these the workers are immigrants. Yeah, I, yeah, um, and not just in Canada. I mean, I visited homes in Stockholm and there were a lot of people there who were also immigrants um, and we know that immigrants tend to be um, more vulnerable um, they're trying to adapt to different cultures there sometimes unfortunately is racism mm -hmm. especially if their skin color um, is different from what the what people expect in the country. Um, so these are people who are working hard. They may be facing discrimination. Um, certainly in, in the home in Sweden, there was um, evidence of that, in, at least from one, one family that did not like um, immigrants taking care of their, their, um, their relative. Um, and in Canada, we don't pay these people very well at all. Mm. Mm. And that's something I think that bears repeating, that, that one of the problems that we saw repeatedly was that these people are often paid 
poorly enough that they have to work several jobs to, in order to make enough money to make ends meet. And we've discovered that, of course, that's one of the ways that COVID gets spread sure. between, uh, between various residences. And so that, that becomes a serious problem, just staff being totally underpaid. They can get away with that because they, they feel they can get away with it because they're immigrants and they're women primarily. Yes. And, and to undervalue both of those categories. Right. And uh, we, we have, of course, heard that in the news uh, recently about that, uh, that, that because they are so poorly pay, paid that they do have to take on, as you pointed out, uh, working in different homes. So they travel from one place to the other. I, I can well imagine they're probably working long hours as well and, uh, you know, probably feeling fatigued uh, and dealing with all the stresses that anyone has to, to put up with. You pointed out some of these uh, in, instances uh, of, of people are are single moms, uh, so they have that uh, additional uh, uh, on their mind as well to take care of their children. So uh, it does certainly uh, paint uh, not a great picture um, that you you would hope that that these people that need attention that need help um, the care the people in the, these homes um, would be would be getting the kind of help that they need um, you know as someone that is that is being able to focus not have to worry about a lot of those things that we just pointed out uh, so that they can one uh, give those people the best care they can possibly have uh, as well as not add to the stress that I'm sure is difficult it's not an easy job. It, it, it very much isn't an easy job. And again, because we give it to women and we give it to immigrants, it's assumed that, of course, any woman can do this kind of work because it's care work and that's mm -hmm. what women are born to do. Well, not true. It's a, it's a skilled job that requires training, requires ongoing training. And, and I think it's also worth pointing out that there was a gradient here that we saw that, that in general, the, the municipally run and, and publicly owned homes tended to do a better job of training, of hiring, of maintaining staff and providing decent salaries than did the privately run homes. Uh, privately run homes, of course, take money away for profit for their shareholders, and that's money that can only come out of a few places, and, and staff salaries and benefits is certainly one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so they tend to get shortchanged more in privately run homes than they do in municipally run or government-run homes. Right. I'm going to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in those coordinates with E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. My guests here on Moment of Truth today are Joel Lexchin. He is a doctor, a professor emeritus of health policy and management at York University. And also joining us is Dr. Robert James, and he is associate clinical professor in family medicine at McMaster University. It's a pleasure to have them both with us. We are talking about long-term care homes. They uh, co-authored uh, an article uh, on long-term care homes. And... It was alluded to earlier in the conversation as well about how you saw that the roles weren't as strict in some countries as they would be here. Can we talk a little bit about what they're like here, what you saw here, as compared to what you saw in other, uh, in other places, and I guess specifically in Germany, where it seemed to be a, a very, even just reading about it, sounded like a very amicable and warm environment? It was indeed. Um, and I was the one that was in the home in Germany, 
And I've been in, in many homes in Canada as well. In Canadian homes, the roles tend to be fairly strictly regulated and, and divided. And, um, and sometimes there's union contracts or staff contracts that reinforce those, that division of roles. In, in the home we were in in Germany, there was much more flexibility there that we saw people doing things that they normally would not be within their, their uh, designated role. I mean, obviously, some things like, like administering medications and, and mm. insulin injections and so on uh, are reserved for registered staff. But uh, we would see registered staff cleaning up a floor if it needed to be cleaned. We'd see registered staff washing dishes if necessary. We'd see uh, even the patients would be sometimes helping to, uh, to prepare meals and, and, uh, and to do some of the cleanup and setting, setting the table and cleaning up after a meal. And that's the sort of thing which just isn't allowed in, in, in this country. Hmm. Uh, and I think it's a shame because many of those people, many of the residents, got years of doing this and really mm. enjoy that kind of right. uh, work a sense of feeling useful and meaningful to right. the home's existence right uh, no it was it was quite wonderful to see the home in, in germany i must say i was tempted afterwards to learn german so i could get to that <laughs> long-term care home instead of uh, going to one in canada here well they all speak pretty good english over there don't they <laughs> well they're not bad but the uh, <laughs> In this particular home was in a small town in Germany, and and uh, there was much less English than you find in other right. places. Right. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that I noticed um, was that in Canada and especially in Ontario, is the um, there are lots of regulations, um, and we certainly do need regulations around around things around how to protect residents, but there wasn't as much, um, there didn't seem to be the degree of um, cooperation and the respect for the staff um, and the ability of the staff to, to function um, independently as there are in some other countries. And that independence I think is what allows the flexibility um, for the roles in other places. Here we tend to think that if we have regulations, that that's going to solve the problems. Mm. And without the respect for the staff, um, regulations just don't aren't enough. You, you know, I'm, I'm glad. All, sorry, go ahead. There is also a, a real sense in some of the other countries, uh, and even in some of the homes we saw in Canada that the care workers were working as a team. For mm. instance, uh, and some of the less good homes that we saw in Canada and, and elsewhere, uh, they had their own roles and didn't interact outside of those roles. I guess what I, where I was going with this is that they're called homes and uh, they're not called hospitals. And you would think that there would be some leniency or some way for the people that are living there in these long-term care homes it is their final home in many instances so that they can feel like they're at home um, and uh, to be able to uh, participate. Um, but, you know, the, the point about the regulations, um, I'm glad I was going to ask about that. So I'm glad you brought that up. So there is the, those regulations that are in place are preventing people here from actually being able to participate and get involved. So is that what you're, you're saying? 
in some cases. I mm. mean, I think the regulations are, are in in many cases excessive. You spend a lot of your time. I mean, I watched the nurses and nurses aides uh, in my home um, spending a lot of time meeting the regulations rather than dealing with the residents that they wanted to deal with. Mm. Uh, and, and, and that's fine. I mean, as Joel says, you need to have regulations, but when it gets in the way of good quality care, that's, that's a problem. And again, using the home in Germany, they were flexible enough to say, well, you know, we have this regulation, but you know, today, you know, as long as we're not hurting anybody and things are safe, then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll bend the regulations to the extent we can. Mm-hmm. And I found that very refreshing. Um, now, just going back to, to the staffing issue, um, it was pointed out in the article, and we did hear about this to some degree in, in news stories that have come out uh, since COVID-19 uh, brought attention to this as well. How, how close to the wire do they do the homes operate in terms of you know staff because we've heard this your article points it out as well if someone is off sick or they're it really throws everything amuck they're that close to the wire in terms of, of just not having people is I understand it's also difficult to get people to work it is difficult and again this goes back to what we talked about before um, they're undervalued and underpaid. Mm. And so people can make more money if they work in the hospital sector than if they work in the long-term care sector. Right. Uh, they can get better hours as well if they do that. Right. So they will often forego work in long-term care so that they can work in hospitals or even in home care. Mm. Um, and and that, that becomes a problem. You asked how close to the line, very close to the line. Uh, it's not unusual on a shift for them to be phoning for a temporary replacement nurse or nurse's aide or PSW um, to try to fill a spot. And sometimes they can and sometimes they can't. When they can't, then the people that are working are working uh, extra time and extra duties. You know, my... my and, um, the, you know, that also affects communications especially at nighttime mm. so when I've been in the emergency department um, and there's been a resident from one of these homes come sent to the emergency um, and I need to get more information because of the lack of staff sometimes it takes half an hour to an hour to for somebody to get back to me wow. um, with to be able to answer questions that I have mm. about the, the person that I'm seeing. And that um, impacts the care that that person's getting um, while I'm waiting to hear back. Um, and it makes it just more difficult for everybody. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, my calls to the, to the home, just add to the burden of people who are already um, working hard um, at nighttime, looking after maybe 20 residents um, on their own. It adds to my problems being able to provide proper care and it impacts um, especially the, the resident who um, may not be getting um, the kind of care that they need for a particular problem. What, where do we go from here? What, what what do you guys want to want? Hope comes out of this. Well, we've got some blueprints already. Um, the 
the inquiry that came out of the, the Elizabeth Westhoffer affair where there were some murders in long-term care facilities out by one of the nurses, mm. that, that inquiry listed several recommendations. Um, but I think that there, there are a number that come out related to COVID. First of all, we need to have staff that work in only one place, mm. uh, not several places, and that means you need to pay them well. Uh, you need to respect them. You need to make sure they've got adequate benefits. Uh, you have to look at the structure of the homes, get rid of the four bedrooms, uh, get rid of the two bedrooms even, uh, because you can't properly isolate in a, in a four bedroom. Mm. Uh, you need to make sure that you've got uh, adequate rooms to do isolation when, when the time comes and it will come again. Uh, you need to stop privatizing. You need to bring some of those facilities or bring some of the functions of the facilities back in-house, like preparing meals in-house, uh, doing cleaning in-house rather than farming that out to an industrialized company. Mm. Uh, there's, anyway, I could, I could go on, but there's, there's a lot of these things we've known, and uh, that's where I'd like to see it go. Right. You need enough staff so that you're getting four hours, of, at least four hours of care per resident per day. Right. Uh, in long-term care facilities, and that's a ways from where we are right now. Okay. Uh, Joel, any final comments just before we wrap up? Well, I think that Bob has outlined some of the major um, major reforms that we need to, to look at. Um, and But what we need is the idea that we can't, um, we can't penny pinch on these people. Um, as Bob pointed out, these are people who have helped build the kind of society that we have now, and we have to treat them with respect. Um, and treating them with respect means providing them with the proper care that they need, good food, pe people who can have the time to interact with them, um, and all that needs money, and we can't um, we can't take the attitude that we have now that we can privatize these homes, um, where unfortunately it seems that in some of them at least the um, primary goal is not to provide good care, but to make money for the shareholders. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure speaking with both of you. We really appreciate you taking the time to do so, and we appreciate you bringing this information forward so that we can uh, get that out there for people to think about. And let's hope that these that these situations do definitely improve in the future. Thank you for your questions. For yeah, thanks care. for taking the time. Oh, you bet. Thank you both for uh, taking the time to join us. They are the voices of uh, Dr. Joel Lexchin, and he is a professor emeritus at, uh, of health policy and management at York University, and emergency uh, physician at University of Health Network, an associate professor of family and community medicine at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Robert James, associate uh, clinical professor and family medicine, McMaster University, and uh, uh, Dr. James, anything else to add? Add to that? No, I think that's fine. I think you've summed it up well. Okay, great. Thank you. And we want to thank you, our listeners, for listening to Moment of Truth right here on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And that is this part of the show. But don't go away because we'll be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM.
Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in those coordinates, either one of those two, plus E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then you can listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week, anywhere in the country. It's a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the show. Jasmine Zine, Professor of Sociology and the Muslim Studies Option at Wilfrid Laurier University, and her publications include numerous journal articles on Islamic feminism and Muslim women's studies and Muslims and education uh, in the Canadian diaspora and Islamophobia studies. Welcome to the show, Jasmine, first of all. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's it's a pleasure. And we're here partly because of an article you wrote in The Conversation uh, that uh, is entitled Unmasking the Racial Politics of the Coronavirus Pandemic. And what's interesting I find about that is that I remember when we first, uh, when this all started and people were being asked to wear masks, and I thought there's a certain irony here. Uh, you know, because of things that have happened in specifically with with women having to wear masks uh, and cover their faces, um, you know, and the issues that that happened in Quebec around that. And I thought this is a little ironic that this is happening now and everyone seems to be, uh, you know, being told to wear a mask. So uh, I'm glad that we have this opportunity to talk because I think that your article points out a, a lot of the a lot of the discrepancies and a lot of this uh, a lot of the, po- the the racial politics around this kind of thing. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, when you mentioned first, what struck you was the fact that you know uh, women, and in particular some Muslim women, who um, you know, based on their uh, relationship to their faith, choose to cover their face. Mm. You know, a lot of Muslim women cover their hair, um, but some Muslim women wear what's called a niqab and Mm -hmm. cover their face. And, you know, in Quebec, as you mentioned, Bill 21 has uh, outlawed religious symbols in public. So these women now who wear the niqab, who cover their face for religious reasons, are, are uh, you know, in violation of uh, the law now. Mm. Um, and this has meant that they are denied access to social services, um, even access to public transit, for that matter. Right. Um, despite the fact that now, you know, the government has made those requests for public face coverings uh, as a result of the pandemic, um, you know, uh, has been has been mandating and requiring those, you know, more and more. So it puts these women in a position where because they're covering their face, they're in violation of the law, they face uh, penalties and, uh, you know, punitive measures against them, you know, not being able to access social services or get on a bus or you know, go into a library and take out a book, uh, you know, things like this. Um, Whereas everyone else is sort of seen now as a good citizen, right? And they are being constructed as, as, as outlaws, as, uh, you know, not as if they are upholding a public good. And I think more and more, it's being seen that when you wear a mask, you are being constructed as a good citizen, you know, a good liberal citizen who is upholding the public good and public safety, you're protecting yourself and others. And there's something lost 
lot about about that in terms of uh, you know this being a kind of new civic duty that we have, um, and yet you have certain sort of archetypes that have emerged uh, or maybe reemerged during the pandemic. Certain racial archetypes that when they wear a mask, it has a very very different meaning. So when Muslim women cover their face, they are seen as not being part, of, not being a good liberal citizen. In fact, they're seen as illiberal minorities who are capitulating to, you know, an atavistic faith tradition, they are, um, you know, uh, subservient to patriarchy, all of these sorts of stereotypes are, are there, they, you know, were seen as, well, this is, you know, um, you can't see someone's face, you don't know what they're up to, this could be, they could get into, you know, be uh, involved in uh, various kinds of suspicious activities and so on. I mean, this was a lot of the Islamophobic hype mm. uh, around women covering their face and why this ended up being uh, outlawed. Everything from, you know, uh, how it is a, a kind of uh, security threat to even a civilizational threat that they are, you know, spreading this version of, of a kind of uh, authoritarian patriarchal Islam and, and mm. that should not be uh, part of the public sphere. So they become banished from the public sphere, whereas everyone else is encouraged to do that, to cover their face in public. <laughs> yes, uh, there lies the irony I was referring to. And, and you know, it, 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 so, so since this, is, this has happened, do you know that if there has been any, any, uh, any change in that regard? In, you know, specifically, I guess we're looking at Quebec at this moment with the, with the bill that you mentioned. And um, has that changed at all? I think I just saw something in the news regarding this uh, specifically, um, if I'm not mistaken. Well, there have been challenges, I think, to uh, ongoing sort of charter challenges to uh, Bill 21. Um, you know, neither of them have been successful at this stage. I think that there's definitely ongoing attempts to, to challenge this. Mm. Um, and yet the hypocrisy, you know, uh, the irony, the hypocrisy that, you know, you, you were mentioning and that is, I think, quite evident in this um, hasn't really been addressed. You know, so, um, you know, this is unfortunately uh, one of the reasons. And it's not just actually in Quebec. I mean, in mm. France, too, there's similar uh, laws. There's many Western nations that uh, do not allow Muslim mm. women to cover their face and yet at the same time are mandating face veils. So when we talk about France, if you're a Muslim woman there covering your face, um, you would be subject to a fine as well as required to take citizenship classes. Mm. Um, that are there to, you know, to sort of culturally rehabilitate you and teach you about good citizenship. <laughs> Whereas everyone else who wears a mask is automatically, you know, seen as a good citizen. Right. And, you know, that was one of the things I was trying to play off in this uh, article was really to point out uh, those kinds of hypocrisy and different standards and the way that um, various racialized bodies are read differently mm. when they wear a mask. Yeah, I, I think that I, I saw something with the premier of Back, that was he was questioned about this, I believe, and he said that that the the bill was not racist. It was is it secularism. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and secularism they're, and they're can never be racist, right? <laughs> so, um, no, I think that they are very dug in around their position mm -hmm. and and the protection of uh, of a secular uh, space. You know, but at the end of the day, you have this uh, you know this really glaring. 
hypocrisy between those who are masking um, and, and it's seen as a, a protection from, from you know, uh, the virus and protecting public safety, but other women who are doing the exact same thing are held to a different legal and cultural standard. Mm. And of course, they're not prepared to uh, address that hypocrisy, but simply to try and justify it, which is unfortunately um, the way that uh, this bill has moved forward. And it unfortunately seems to be part of the same old thinking that is being challenged right now, I guess, internationally in terms of racism and and, uh, in light of recent events that have happened. Yes, uh, and I, you know, I, I think it's it's really wonderful to see uh, people rising up and taking to the streets and challenging, um, you know, the kind of systemic racism that has existed. Uh, and others seem to be just uh, coming to this information mm. and and joining on in in various ways. And uh, but you know, the fact that at least these have not this issue of. Um, systemic racism and, and violence, particularly when it comes to authority and the police and so on, is at least not just elevated to a matter of national debate, but global um, debate. And I think that that's, uh, you know, very powerful and hopefully there will be some some good to come out of it. But I think what the pandemic has done is actually continued to underscore the very deep kinds of uh, racial inequalities that have already existed, but are now even more um, you know, manifest and, and obvious and, and having incredible uh, impacts on, on vulnerable communities. You know what's interesting about this very simple piece of face uh, apparel that people put on and the COVID-19 situation? It, it, has, it has showed us so many of the inequities within our society. It's really strange how something, you know, as small as this, as well as events, of course, the tragic events that have taken place and, yeah. and, and, and come forward. But, you know, just the idea that a simple mask being put on your face has uh, spurred these, these, these conversations about racial inequity. You know, I, I think that part of the article that you wrote, you talk about a, an invisible knapsack that, that, uh, uh, that white people carry around uh, as, 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 as privileges that they may not even realize. And uh, I, I think that was a really interesting uh, point to make. Yeah, I was drawing on, uh, you know, the American uh, anti-racist educator Peggy McIntosh, who uh, wrote an article, you know, a couple of decades ago, actually, about this idea of white whiteness and unearned mm. privilege mm. Um, that, you know, can be seen as this sort of invisible knapsack of all of these advantages that are accrued to be white people that in many cases, yeah, they're not always uh, aware that they have access to. So, you know, she has a list of about 50 different, um, uh, you know, privileges that she as a white person um, took for granted. Mm. And I mentioned a couple of those in the articles, things like, you know, going shopping and not being followed or harassed mm -hmm. or not being asked to speak for all white people, um, not having to educate your children to be aware of systemic racism as a, a means of their own, you know, daily protection. Um, those are just a couple of points out of a list of, uh, I think, over 50 that she had. And it struck me that, you know, this was uh, a way to talk about uh, what we're seeing, you know, with the kind of masking policy 
politics, the racial masking politics, because a lot of when we talk about whiteness, of course, goes back to European colonialism mm. and whiteness became that sort of standard against which all other bodies were marked and codified and, and judged. And um, uh, and so, you know, this is a, is a deeply ingrained uh, problem. And it's still, you know, this is something that as a, if you're a white person, you don't have to think about when you put on a mask and you leave your house. You know, you can just be seen as a good citizen. In fact, if we talk about, you know, being a good liberal citizen, that idea came, was born out of the European Enlightenment and all of the uh, thinking around what it meant to be a, um, you know, the, what the public good meant and what being a rational member of society meant and all of that was very much uh, a way I think that helped reinforce uh, a kind of Eurocentric hegemony. And so when we talk about the construction of a good citizen now, um, who puts on a mask and goes out, uh, that is, is a kind of honor and privilege that is afforded to white bodies who don't have to think about, well, am I violating the law? In Quebec if I do this mm. or for example um, you know if you are uh, Asian and you are wearing a mask you know you are seen as not as uphold, uh, not as upholding public safety but you're the threat to public safety you know right. you are the pandemic starter right you are being uh, viewed as um, uh, you know a foreign entity that has brought this lethal virus um, you know to Canada and so it, it becomes you become transformed into the yellow peril the embodiment of the yellow peril you know and that has had you know a real impact on Asian communities, you know, after I wrote this piece, I had a student, former student of mine, um, you know, who is Asian, who said, you know, this really resonated because she said, you know, I have to make that decision every day when I go out. Do I wear this mask and then be subject to harassment and, mm. you know, comments and people's, uh, you know, looking at me or avoiding me, you know, um, um, or do I just not wear it and then, um, you know, have to risk being infected? Mm. You know, so there is this calculus that uh, racialized bodies have to make in terms of, you know, their own safety, how their body will be read by others in public. And that, um, you know, has an impact on them. And uh, not everybody is seen the same. You know, the mask mm -hmm. is not a great leveling device. It makes everyone the same. It actually yep. just uh, opens up, um, you know, even more so the kinds of racial divides, stigmas, stereotypes that have existed. Because, you know, these ideas of, of Asian bodies as, as you know, um, foreign disease carrying uh, uh, entities is not new. It's, you know, these kinds of stereotypes have circulated for, you know, about 100 years in in, in uh, in Canada. And so, you know, um, this just continues that you have, you know, Trump talked about the virus as the, the Chinese virus. Mm -hmm. So it becomes this racializing of disease and the and people become the personification of that threat. Right. And then they have to deal with the day to day effect um, of those projections of those racist stereotypes and people's fears um, are projected on to them and you know it doesn't help when the media continues to use stock images of you know Asians wearing masks like they found during the SARS crisis that that they you know there was research done on newspaper uh, representation and they found that the dominant image that was used was you know of an Asian person wearing a mask 
And after a while, when those images continue to circulate and continue to be reiterated, you know, you start to make those connections uh, more easily. You know, people start to see that image connected with disease and foreign and all of these sorts of negative racial archetypes come together and coalesce. And then, of course, that affects how, um, you know, the kinds of hate crimes that start to happen. And there's been a real increase in anti-Asian hate crimes since the pandemic began. Everything from, you know, physical harassment to vandalism, uh, threats. Um, yeah, it's been, uh, you know, uh, very much manifest as as uh, uh, a lot of anti-Asian racism that came along with mm. uh, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in those coordinates, either one of them, plus E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Jasmine Zine, and she's a professor of sociology at Wilfrid Laurier University. It's a pleasure to have her on. You were a, on quite a run there. I didn't want to interrupt you. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> no worries. No worries. We're talking about uh, partially about a, an article that uh, Jasmine wrote in, in the uh, conversation about unmasking the racial politics of the coronavirus pandemic. You know, you, you spoke there about um, how masks were not um, a, a leveling device. However, coronavirus certainly has shown us that that it is, because that's why everyone is wearing a mask and is being told to, because it is, and and doesn't doesn't uh, uh, leave out anyone. Everyone can be affected, and everyone can be in, infected by the by the disease, and hence we are in this situation. So it's interesting, and coming back to this, that it's an interesting, uh, you know, small little thing that this 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 mask has, uh, in 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 some ways, been able to point out those inequities that we are seeing uh, racially and and in society, and bring us to a point where we're just we're talking about it right now. So what uh, when you when you wrote this article, what were you hoping that people might take away from it? Well, I think I wanted to uh, make the point that, you know, there people are affected differentially. As you said, you know, this virus in that sense doesn't discriminate. It uh, uh, can affect anyone and everyone. But we also know that, you know, more vulnerable communities, a lot of those are racialized communities, mm. have been more susceptible, right, to right. to that. So there's always certain social determinants uh, around health. And, you know, racism will affect uh, somebody's health, their access to, uh, sure. you know, um, medical care and so on and the conditions they find themselves in. And so it's never, ever, you know, equal in that, in that way. And I wanted to show also that the politics of masking or wearing a mask, um, isn't something that, you know, everyone can necessarily take for granted. I mean, you know, you mentioned the, the tragedy of, of George, George Floyd's, um, uh, killing, for example. And, you know, I talk about also the black mask, uh, black men wearing masks, you mm. know, their body is red as a, as a potential threat to the sure. point where that gets internalized. And mm. one of the examples I gave in the article was this uh, project that was started by some black cur- clergy and local police in Illinois that was called Tipping the Mask. Mm-hmm. And you would go into a store and kind of tip your mask so the shopkeeper could see that you are not a threat to them. And right. it was very interesting to me that this was, um, you know, developed by black 
uh, clergy and one pastor who said, you know, he actually told his son, you know, don't put on your mask till you get into the store. Mm -hmm. So they don't see you as a threat because as right. we know, there are very deadly consequences Absolutely. attached to, sure. um, you know, black bodies being perceived, you know, in, in you know, as a threat and, and um, how that has been, uh, you know, how policing has intervened in that with very deadly consequences. So it is an important, um, you know, realization, I think, to have and also to see how that sort of surveillance is internalized and how you start thinking yourself about, well, how am I going to be perceived when I go out and I'm wearing a mask? You know, if I'm Asian, if I'm black, if I'm Muslim or any, you know, there were either I, you know, only dealt with three that that um, seemed the most salient to me at the time, but certainly for other racialized bodies that can also be um, a, uh, a factor in how people will perceive you because yeah. of pre-existing <laughs> racial stereotypes. So right. I didn't, I wanted that to be clear so that, you know, um, and, and this idea of the good citizen, you know, and how um, being a, seen as a good citizen, that sense of belonging to this imagined community of the nation is always a contingent um, thing, mm -hmm. right? It isn't always a given. Uh, we can't always, uh, when we come from racialized and marginalized communities, uh, rely on being part of that franchise. Um, and so I wanted to make that uh, right. point evident as well, that not everyone has the luxury of simply putting on a mask going out and being seen as a good citizen who's you know guarding their health and safeguarding the health of others, but there's all of these other racial uh, archetypes that intervene and, you know, in that, as you said, simple gesture. And, and you know what you were what you were referring to in the in the article uh, backs up with some of the other conversations that we have had here on the show uh, regarding Black Lives Matter when we had some guests on talking uh, to them and how they were they uh, have to talk to their children at some point uh, a black parent always has to have the talk with their child and that talk has to do with how to address a police officer for instance and what to do and what not to do and this re this sort of reinforces that because of what you're saying about the uh, and and when you quote uh, Peggy McIntosh's uh, whiteness and that invisible knapsack of unearned privileges that that white people have in regard to even putting on a mask and not even realizing what you have been talking about in this article that other people have to think about uh, what are the consequences when I do this? When I step out of here with this mask on, what? How am I being read? How am I being looked at? And for for those uh, for the the the, the uh, you know for white people, it's it's a non you know it, they don't have to think about it. They just go about their business. So it's it's uh, we thank you for putting this article out there for people to uh, read and think about uh, as we go through this COVID nineteen situation. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I think it is important considerations um, that we all have to be aware of that this isn't simply, um, you know, that this has really brought out the racial fault lines that are mm. underwriting the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, Jasmine, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you and we really want to say thank you for joining us here on Moment of Truth today. That's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, hopefully if there's further developments in this area, we could uh, touch base and maybe have you back on the show. I would be very happy to do that. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. That's the voice of Jasmine Zine, Professor of Sociology at Wilfrid Laurier University. And that is your show here on Moment of Truth. We want to thank you, our listeners, for listening. And we'll see you next time right here on Element FM, Moment of Truth. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.